Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today we have two very special guests because we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the most incendiary, blasphemous, controversial theory of all time, a theory which still makes headlines around the world, a theory called evolution. It was 150 years ago that Charles Darwin wrote Origin of Species and set off a bombshell that reverberates even today. So our first special guest on exploration is Dr. Robert Hagen. He is an astrobiologist. He looks for evolution not on the Earth, but in outer space. And the question that we're going to ask today is, is it possible to bring a bunch of chemicals together to create the basic ingredients for life? Is life, in some sense, for free? Does it happen all by itself spontaneously in outer space, according to the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics? Well, Dr. Robert Hagen is an astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution in Washington, D.C., and he's the author of a new book called Genesis, talking about the search for life in outer space and how many scientists believe that life may form spontaneously, literally, all by itself if you bring the right chemicals and the right conditions together. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about the most controversial, the most incendiary aspect of Charles Darwin's theory, and that is the application to human beings. When Charles Darwin wrote The Descent of Man, arguing that humans descended from a common ape-like ancestor, well, everything hit the fan at that point. Everyone from religious people to the man on the street to learned observers and even scientists began to denounce Charles Darwin, saying that this was all blasphemous, saying that this contradicted the Bible. Well, Charles Darwin simply presented evidence, voluminous amounts of evidence and data, a lot of it incomplete, of course, but sufficient data to convince many biologists that Charles Darwin was really on to something. In fact, many biologists, including the famous Thomas Huxley, said, gee, why didn't I think of that? It's such a simple idea, survival of the fittest, natural selection, plants and animals evolve with time, and certain characteristics are accentuated because of natural selection, and that we're all descended from a common ancestor. Such a simple idea, said many people. And of course, it's no accident that even today, even today, the theory of evolution is denounced by fundamentalists because it does violate many of their teachings. So once again, the first special guest is Dr. Robert Hagen, astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution and author of the book, Genesis, talking about the genesis of life in outer space. And the second special guest talk about the most incendiary aspect of the evolutionary theory, the application to you and me. Our special guest is Carl Zimmer, biologist, author of the book Evolution, talking about how humans, humans probably evolved from a common ape-like ancestor according to the fossil evidence, and also the voluminous evidence given to us by DNA and biotechnology.
So in exploration today, we talk about evolution in outer space and evolution of our own bodies. Our first special guest today is Dr. Robert Hagen of the Carnegie Institution outside Washington, D.C. He's an astrobiologist, author of the new book, Genesis, and we are talking about how the first spark of life began on the planet Earth about three and a half billion years ago. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? Oh, man, I was so excited about nature when I was young. We had a house in Cleveland, Ohio, that backed onto a swamp. And my brother and I would go tramping back, and we'd collect butterflies, and we'd collect frogs, and we'd collect crayfish. And at night, I loved looking up at the sky and the stars. And so my parents bought me a telescope. And the first one was really small, but then I got larger and larger telescopes and ended up building my own. So I loved looking at the sky, and Saturn was my favorite. So nature just turned me on. When I was... In high school, I moved to northern New Jersey, and northern New Jersey is a, just a gold mine for minerals. They're famous mineral localities, and I had a teacher who pointed me in the direction and said, go to Franklin, New Jersey, go to Patterson, New Jersey, collecting minerals, and that's what really got me into mineralogy, which is my main field right through college. Okay, now you are an expert in an area that is not familiar to the average person, and that is something called astrobiology. So what is astrobiology? Oh, astrobiology is one of the most amazing new integrated fields in science. It's the study of the origin of life, the distribution of life in the universe, and also discusses what the future of life might be in the universe. This is a field that has been brought to life by major new funding through NASA and the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is based at the Ames Research Center in California. Okay, so your book is entitled Genesis, The Scientific Quest for Life's Origin. Let's begin now in the year 1953 uh, with an experiment done by a graduate student uh, under the direction of his advisor uh, by the name of Stanley Miller. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and how that led to a paradigm shift with regards to how we view Genesis? Boy, Professor, what a transformation that was. Stanley Miller young 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Chicago. His mentor was Harold Urey, who had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of deuterium, the heavy hydrogen isotope of heavy water. So Urey was incredibly famous. Miller was unknown. Miller came to Urey and said, I want to try an experiment to make the molecules of life from nothing more than a primitive atmosphere. Now, Urey had proposed the primitive atmosphere consisted of hydrogen, methane, which is the natural gas you burn on your stove, and ammonia, that's the strong-smelling chemical from ammonia cleaners. And he mixed those together with water and just ran electric sparks through a piece of glassware. And lo and behold, in just two or three days, that clear, colorless solution began turning shades of pink and then brown, and then black gunk started getting deposited on the sides of the glassware. Miller had made a whole range of organic molecules that were basic building blocks of life. 
the amino acids that make our proteins, the sugars that make our carbohydrates, all sorts of molecules that form cell membranes called lipids. And not only that, a few of the bases that are called, these are the molecules that are key components of DNA and RNA. Many of the most fundamental building blocks of life just appeared out of a simple primitive atmosphere and sparks like lightning. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Uh, what we're talking about is getting a flask with horrible chemicals like ammonia, methane, hydrogen, sending a spark through it, uh, essentially replicating what they thought was the early atmosphere of the Earth bombarded by X-rays and lightning bolts and so on and so forth. And bingo, out of that came the building blocks of proteins, amino acids. So what was the reaction of the scientific community, which before that experiment uh, was really um, basically had no theory as to how organic chemicals could form out of nothing? It's true. This was a bombshell. The scientific community looked at this and said, wow, this must be how life originated. If in just a couple of days you can go from a simple atmosphere to all these building blocks of life, then given millions of years, the early ocean would just have been chock-a-block full of all kinds of organic molecules. And that was what led to this idea of the primordial soup, an early broth of just the right building blocks for life. So people thought, gee, it's just going to be a matter of 10 or 20 years and we'll know everything there is to know about the origin of life. Of course, that was a little overly optimistic. It's, it's taken us a lot longer and we're still a long way from knowing. But this was the first experiment, the seminal experiment that set us on the path to believing that there is a chemical origin of life going from the simplicity of a geochemical world to the complexity of the biochemical world. Okay, so back in the 50s, they thought that the early atmosphere of the Earth was a hostile brew of ammonia, methane, hydrogen, and things like that. However, today, we're not so sure. That's right. Uh, today, many groups have proposed a different scenario uh, for the formation of life on the Earth, very similar, of course, to what uh, Miller and Urey had, but with a different chemical composition of the soup. Uh, what is now the leading theory as to what the atmosphere and the oceans look like back then? Well, the, the one thing about the atmosphere is that Yuri's idea of an atmosphere with hydrogen and methane is much to what's called reducing. We think that it was a much more chemically neutral atmosphere, including things like nitrogen, the dinitrogen gas that makes up most of our atmosphere today, perhaps some CO2, uh, perhaps uh, other minor components like carbon monoxide, maybe a little bit of methane, maybe some hydrogen, but not as chemically reactive as the atmosphere that Miller proposed. Nevertheless, when you put sparks through any of those atmospheres, you still get very interesting products. So the basic concept of the Miller-Urey experiment is certainly valid. But there are other environments, as you suggest. Okay. Now, um, the Alvin submarine, uh, which was used to probe the Titanic riding on the bottom of the ocean, and also to retrieve a hydrogen bomb uh, dropped off the coast of Palomar, Spain, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was also used to investigate what are called volcano vents. And some people say that perhaps volcano vents is where life got started. It's one theory, but could you elaborate on that theory? Yeah, the idea here is that life requires a couple of simple ingredients. It requires water some kind of water-rich environment. It involves, it requires energy of some kind. Now, Miller said lightning, other people say sunlight. 
but you also have the energy from the Earth's inner heat, and you require carbon and other carbon-based compounds, what are called organic molecules. Turns out one of the most exciting environments on Earth where all three of those ingredients come together are the deep ocean vents, the hydrothermal vents, or the black smokers, as they're sometimes called, on the bottom of the ocean. And these were discovered in the late 1970s by, this, by scientists diving in the submersible Alvin off the Pacific coast, completely unexpected to find not just these hydrothermal vents, these undersea smokers, if you will, with, with all sorts of mineral-rich hot fluids coming out, but to find living communities far, far below the influence of the sun, where it's totally dark all the time, and yet life thrives because of all that energy coming out of the ocean floor. Now, when we talk about energy, uh, we realize that we mammals get our energy by eating plants. So we mammals could not have been the first form of life on the Earth. But plants, in turn, get their uh, energy from sunlight in a very complicated process called photosynthesis, which also could not have been the original energy-generating device because it's very complicated. And we're talking about creating life from nothing almost. So you're saying essentially that the energy supply could have been uh, this very caustic environment on the bottom of the ocean? That's the theory, and here's why people think that might be so. In our bodies, the energy for example, from plants or from sunlight, is converted through a process called oxidation-reduction reactions. These are reactions just like that occur in a battery, your flashlight batteries. You're basically transferring electrons from one group of chemicals to another. And that exact same process occurs deep on the ocean floor because very, what are called reducing fluids, come out from the, below the ocean surface and they hit very oxidizing water in the ocean. And that couple, the oxidation and the reduction together, causes chemical reactions, just like in a battery, just like in your body. That's what we think the very first energy for life was, just like a battery driven by the Earth. Okay, now the astronomer Fred Hoyle had a different theory. In fact, he was quite the contrarian uh, within uh, cosmological circles. And he said the following, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, roughly speaking, and during the first billion years was the age of asteroids and meteors, constant bombardment by debris from outer space for about a billion years. We see that on the moon even today. And as a consequence, if life formed in the oceans, the oceans would have boiled off, and therefore life could not have gotten started within the first billion years. So after the age of meteors ends, boom, bingo, life gets started very soon. So he says this means that life could not have started on the Earth. It came from outer space in the form of spores. So he called this the panspermia theory. But what are your thoughts about the panspermia theory? Well, at first glance, it sounds like a pretty crackpot idea, you know, life being seeded from outer space. But a lot of scientists are now taking this very seriously. I think there are two possibilities. One is that life is a cosmic imperative. It arises everywhere, and it arises very quickly. I've heard scientists say life comes about in a million years or a thousand years. There's one very famous scientist in the field who even says it takes two weeks. Well, if that's true, then life would have arisen on Earth and there's no problem. But what if life does take hundreds of millions of years? We have a planetary neighbor, Mars, that was habitable long before Earth, much less in the way of bombardment by meteorites, much more benign in terms of its temperature early on, 
and it had oceans or lakes. We now know that from these recent discoveries by NASA. So Mars was habitable hundreds of millions of years before Earth. It's very possible that life arose on Mars, and then there's this amazing mechanism. If Mars gets hit by a modest-sized asteroid, say something that's 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers across, there will be, it's been shown, there'll be rocks thrown up into space, and those rocks will be relatively unheated, relatively unstressed. They could contain microbes, and those microbes could then be brought to Earth by Mars meteorites. So there are a whole group of scientists that are giving very serious consideration to the idea that all life on Earth is Mars life, because Mars was habitable earlier. And we may know that if in the next decade or two when we go to Mars and we look specifically for life, we may find Earth-like life or fossils of Earth-like life on Mars that represent our ancestors. So if you want to see a Martian, you should simply look in a mirror. That's possible. Now, let me ask you a question that's bothered me for a long time, and that is the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, but there's only one DNA molecule, rearranged in different ways, of course, but there's only one DNA. It has ATCG as the building blocks, nucleic acids. That's why we can eat anything on the Earth. We can eat sea urchins, we can eat insects, we can eat plants, even though we're separated by a tremendous evolutionary distance because we're all made out of the same molecule. Now, if the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and life gets started pretty quickly, then how come it didn't start again with another DNA and again and again? Why don't we see different DNAs? We only see ATCG. We only see a certain set of amino acids, and that's it. We've had now not just a few hundred million years, but we've had three and a half billion years of quiet oceans with no meteor impacts to speak of. So why don't we have many DNAs? Boy, Professor, you know, that's such a great question, and a lot of us are asking the question in this way. Is the chemistry that we see in life today inevitable? Or are there lots of alternative pathways? Well, if there are alternative pathways, why don't we see them? And the explanation that's most often given is that life was a competition. And once that first successful self-replicating cell with all of its proteins and DNA, that very efficient, very powerful mechanism, once that cell got started, then it divided in a flash. You know, microbes can divide in less than an hour. So you had one, then two, then four, then eight. And in a matter of weeks, the whole Earth was populated by that extremely successful self-replicating cell. And that cell ate everything else. You didn't have a chance. If you weren't the first on the block to know how to live and know how to reproduce, then you were going to get eaten because you were food. Uh, well, let me ask you a question then. Uh, food depends on proteins. Uh, proteins, in turn, depend upon a template, that is DNA template, to create the protein. But there are many proteins that nature has not used. Uh, there are many proteins that you can create that nature has not even thought of. So uh, why didn't another DNA get off the ground that was uneatable, unedible, that it was based on proteins that simply cannot be digested by our DNA, and it's not based on ATCG, the four nucleic acids, but it's based on a different set, uh, you know, PQRST or whatever. And it creates proteins that are undigestible by our cells, and therefore the two life forms should coexist. What are your thoughts? Well, I think partly that life has been very careful in the molecules it selects. For example, RNA uses ribose 
DNA uses deoxyribose. Why those particular sugars? These are sugars with five carbon atoms, and there are dozens of different sugars with five carbon atoms. Why those? Well, it turns out there's actually a, an advantage to those molecules because of their particular shape, and people have shown that if you try to use other molecules, they don't work. So to a certain extent, the molecules that life uses are the best molecules for the job. But also, I think life is incredibly good at taking various other potential molecules and eating them. It's just amazing how life has used all different kinds. Anything in its environment that has energy, life has learned to eat. And I think it's just once you get one kind of life established, it's really hard to get a second competitive system going. It's sort of like the ultimate monopoly. You, you can imagine uh, some company makes the best car, the best computer, and other companies try to get started. But if that first company is so huge and so large, it just swallows up the competition and nothing else to get going. Sort of like the diamond monopoly of De Beers. You know, there's never been another big company making diamonds because De Beers buys them all up and swallows up the competition. Well, the reason I ask you this is because in science fiction movies, we always see aliens from outer space that want some very specific things. First of all, they want to eat us, meaning that they can digest our proteins, which I find remarkable. Second of all, they're going to want to mate with us, in which case they have basically the same DNA as us, literally. So they can interchange uh, DNA sequences with us. And I find this rather impossible. But what you're saying is that in some sense, DNA really is preferable. And that maybe when aliens from outer space land on the Earth, they're going to have DNA which is very similar to ours. Is that what you're saying? I think it's possible that some aspects of biochemistry will be very, very similar, maybe even DNA and RNA. But I think there will be very important differences. For one thing, we have what's called the genetic code. And that basically are sets of three genetic letters that match up to different amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I think that code may be wildly different if even if it's, there is a code on other worlds, that it would be very different from ours. So I can't imagine there being that kind of unity. So there's some chance events, some chance chemical events in the origin of life. But I think there are also some aspects of origins that are going to be very similar from world to world. Okay, well, if you say that, if another DNA got off the ground, and our DNA basically ate up that DNA, then what happens when alien DNA reaches the Earth? Will our DNA consume molecule for molecule their DNA, or vice versa? Perhaps their DNA will consume ours. Well, that's a real good question. It depends on the building block molecules. I can imagine alien DNA. I can imagine alien proteins that are totally poisonous to us, and vice versa. It's also very possible that life on other worlds started with an opposite handedness. There is a, a very curious characteristic of life on Earth that all of the sugar molecules used in DNA and RNA are called right-handed. All the amino acids used in proteins are what are called left-handed. So there are mirror image molecules that our bodies can't use. In fact, that's one of, for dieting, there's a new product out. You can buy left-handed sugars, which taste sweet, but the body can't digest them. So this is one kind of artificial sweetener, which gives you no calories. It's a great invention. It's a great idea. So if there were an alien life form that happened to be reversed, and they used left-handed sugars and right-handed amino acids, then they couldn't eat us, we couldn't eat them. I think we'd probably get along. Okay. Now let's get back to the Miller experiment, because there's a huge gap that we left unfilled. Miller showed that amino acids, in some sense, are for free. 
We see them in nebulas in outer space. We see them in the cores of meteors from outer space. Uh, amino acids are out there in outer space. However, DNA is extremely complicated. If you look at a DNA molecule, you say to yourself, oh my God, look at that thing. And it would have taken an awful long time for Miller to get a DNA molecule off the ground. If he had done his experiment for maybe a billion years in that little test tube, then maybe he would have gotten one DNA molecule off the ground. So there's missing steps now. So some people say that before DNA, there was RNA. And before RNA, there was a even more primitive structures even before RNA. So what do we know about the gap between the amino acids that are for free that we see in the Miller experiment and RNA and DNA? This is probably the single biggest uncertainty in question, but there's so many great ideas out there. For one thing, as you say, RNA is a very complicated molecule. It's hard to imagine how it was synthesized from scratch in a prebiotic soup. Mineral surfaces may have helped. There are some minerals that attract ribose. There are some minerals that attract the bases. Um, but there are other neat ideas out there. In the book, Genesis, I describe an experiment by a person at our laboratory, a guy named Nick Platts, who realized that you could build up an RNA-like molecule from very, very simple building blocks, little cyclical molecules, the kinds of things that are produced when diesel exhaust burns or, or when you have a sooty fire. That soot itself, if you put it in water under just the right circumstances, will form tiny little stacks of molecules. And those stacks, if they're in just the right environment, will attract the bases, the four letters A, T, C, and G of DNA. And those bases can line up on top of each other, and you can actually make a RNA-like molecule from scratch on the primitive Earth. Now, it's very possible, I think, that this is the sort of intermediate step where you build something that's simple from simple building blocks, and that mimics what's going to become more and more complex. You add layers of complexity gradual, one step at a time. So Nick Plath's idea is very, very powerful, um, and, and it's now being studied experimentally. That's the kind of thing people look for. You go from simplicity to complexity through a process known as emergence. Now if you go back, back, way back into the past, and what do we know about the most primitive DNA or RNA on the Earth? Oh, Professor, that's a wonderful question because it has to do with what are essentially the most primitive biochemical features. What are the chemical fossils that we find in modern life that point to the earliest life? And I think the conclusion is unambiguous. There are a few chemical pathways that are buried in every single living thing. One of those is RNA, the ability for RNA not only to store information and pass it on from one generation to the next, but also for RNA to improve or catalyze certain reactions. Another is a cycle of what is known as metabolism, that is taking energy and atoms from the surrounding and building up new molecules. There's something called the citric acid cycle that seems to be built into every living thing. And there are a few other chemical pathways, the ability to take nitrogen and convert it to ammonia, for example. That's also fundamental. That's a way of using the element nitrogen in biological systems. So there are a few chemical pathways that we find in every living thing, and those we believe are the most primitive chemical pathways that point us to something about the earliest life. 
And where are these organisms that are the most ancient, most primitive forms of life on the Earth? Are they in the bottom of the ocean? Right now, the most primitive organisms that we know of are all in very extreme environments, in places where the acidity is very high, in places where it's very cold, in hot, deep hydrothermal vents. And people have two ideas about that. One is the possible, very real possibility that life originated in one of these extreme environments. The other possibility is that life originated near the surface, like Stanley Miller would say, but because of those nasty asteroids and meteors and comets that kept blasting the surface, the only life that survived those last insults was life that had adapted to the deep, hot, protected environments within the Earth's crust. So either way, those are the most primitive organisms that we see today. And that completes our interview with Dr. Robert Hagen, an astrobiologist and author of the new book, Genesis. Stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, professor of theoretical physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, and today we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the theory of evolution, the origin of species published by Charles Darwin 150 years ago. And then next year, biologists are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin. And again, on exploration in the first half, we brought on an astrobiologist. In the old days, the whole concept of astrobiology was a contradiction in terms. But because of the work of Stanley Miller and many others, we now believe that the ingredients of life, the ingredients of life are, in some sense, for free in outer space, and perhaps life can spontaneously occur all by itself, according to the work of many people, including Dr. Robert Hagen, our first special guest. He's the author of the book Genesis, and he's an astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution. That was our first special guest, and our second special guest in this section of exploration is Carl Zimmer. He's the author of many acclaimed books, and his latest book is called simply evolution. And perhaps the most intriguing aspect of all this debate is how this applies to human beings. You know, when Charles Darwin first published Origin of Species, it created quite a splash. It was a sellout. However, he refrained from talking about the evolution of humans. But to him, but to him it was obvious, obvious that humans are, well, in some sense like animals, and that many of the parts of our body evolved from the parts of the bodies of our neighboring species, for example, the great apes. And Charles Darwin even put a place where humanity evolved from, and that is Africa. So why did Charles Darwin select Africa as the birthplace of human beings? Before then, uh, some anthropologists said that perhaps Europe 
was the cradle of all of humanity. In fact, that's why the word Caucasian has an origin. Some people thought that the Caucasus Mountains was the origin of humanity. Charles Darwin said, no, it's Africa, because that's where you find species that look like us, the apes. In Africa, you see so many varieties of monkeys. And if we evolved from a certain species, there were probably neighboring species simultaneously existing with us. And that's why he selected Africa as the cradle of humanity. Well, you can imagine that even today, even today, 150 years after Darwin's theory, it's still controversial. Even though Darwin's theory is the foundation of modern medicine, you cannot practice modern medicine today and do research without understanding evolutionary theory, the theory of DNA, and how it applies to all of us. So in other words, the miracles of modern medicine depend on the theory of evolution by Charles Darwin. Uh, well, Carl Sagan had a book uh, years ago talking about the brain. And, uh, well, maybe you can comment on this. He had a, a theory that there are three layers to the brain. The back of the brain he called the reptilian brain because the brain, in some sense, is a museum of all the early stages of our evolution. And we originally came from the reptiles. So at the very base of the brain is a very simple reptilian brain. Then he said the center of the brain uh, is the, the limbic system, the emotional brain, the, the monkey brain, the social uh, brain. And then the front part of our brain is what really makes reasoning and abstract thought possible, and that's the cerebral cortex, and that, that's what makes us human. Uh, has this uh, held up? Uh, that book by Carl Sagan was several, quite a few years ago. Has that pretty much held up that the, the human brain, in some sense, has an evolutionary heritage from the animal kingdom? Um, the, in the basic outlines, yes. Um, this uh, three-part theory of the brain came up in the 1950s. It was originally proposed by uh, Dr. Paul McLean. Um, and uh, neurologists now look at it as a little too sim simple a version of what was happening. Um, uh, you know, there's not one distinct reptile part of our brain, but certainly um, you can see the evolutionary heritage uh, of our past in, the, in our brains, and particularly in the way our brains develop. I mean, for example, the first vertebrates uh, were basically looked like sort of sardines without a head. They just had a little spinal cord with a, a slightly swollen tip at the end. But you can actually look at the genes that are expressed as that tip of the spinal cord starts to form in these funny little fish. And you see that actually they're the same genes that uh, help to structure our own brain, and they play a lot of the same roles. So you can see uh, a 500 million year history of our brains in the way that our brains develop and the similarities between our brains and the brains of other animals. Okay. Well, you have an article in the latest issue of Discover magazine called Where Are We Going? Why Are Our Brains So Big? Who was the first human? Why do we walk upright? And other great mysteries of human evolution. So let's start the story about six to seven million years ago in Africa, when many scientists think that we first began to split off from the chimpanzees and the apes. So tell us a little bit about the evidence for what happened in Africa six to seven million years ago, and why did we split off? There are two primary kinds of evidence that you can look at. 
Uh, one is fossils. And uh, if you look for fossils of hominids, that is, um, apes that are more closely related to us than to other uh, living apes, um, you, if you go back, you can find, you can find hominids all, all over the old world going back about a million years. And then further back, it gets a little harder to find, a little harder. Um, before about a million and a half years, they're all in Africa. And then the oldest one that's been found is somewhere between six and seven million years old uh, that was found in the Sahara, and it's called Sahel Anthropus. And it was actually just announced last year. So it's quite a tremendous discovery uh, and, and really a very important one. Uh, so you have that as, as our oldest evidence of hominid evolution uh, going on in Africa. But you can also look at another kind of evidence. You can look at the evidence in our own DNA. You can compare our DNA to the DNA of other apes. So our closest living relatives are uh, chimpanzees and bonobos, which look like chimpanzees, um, but they're actually a different species. Anyway, they're basically sort of our first cousins. And if you compare our DNA to theirs, it's astonishingly similar. Uh, if you look at the parts of the human genome where uh, there's a code for proteins, uh, the difference is very hard to find between them, as different as we may look on the outside. In fact, they are uh, about 99.4% identical. So obviously we're very closely related to chimpanzees. Um, and so uh, you can then look at those differences to try to figure out how it is that we split off and what makes us uniquely human. Um, and you can then look at the DNA of people in Africa and people in Asia, people in Europe, and you can see that the root of the family tree, of the human family tree, is in Africa. So we all came out of Africa. And I understand that DNA is also a clock, that we know more or less the rate at which mutations build up within DNA. And given that rate, uh, we could then calculate when we split off from different other species of life on the Earth. Uh, could you elaborate? Sure. <clears throat> yeah. Af over time, uh, a species genome picks up little mutations, and, and a lot of those mutations actually don't uh, bring much harm or much benefit. They just kind of pile up in the background. Uh, and so they seem to pile up at a pretty steady rate. Uh, it depends. The rate may change from species to species, but there are ways of figuring out what that rate is. So um, if you then look at uh, human DNA and chimpanzee chimpanzee DNA and gorilla DNA and orangutan DNA and then kind of line it all up and, and calculate the clock, you can uh, get an estimate of how long ago the ancestors of, say, chimpanzees and humans diverged. Um, and this is really just starting to come together now, these, these molecular clock estimates, because um, you need a lot, of, a lot of data. You need to look at a lot of gene sequences. And so there are, um, for example, uh, you know, recent, uh, recent estimates that um, humans and chimpanzees, their ancestors diverged, say, about 5 million years ago, plus or minus a million years. So that still overlaps with what the fossil evidence says. Um, and, and it also uh, helps to show just how closely related uh, humans and chimpanzees are. Okay, now one of the big questions, why did we separate off from the chimpanzee line or the common line? 
what benefit did, did it give us? And so tell us a little bit about what happened when we first began to diverge from our cousins. Right. Well, this is sort of the, the mystery of mysteries. This is the, the, the question that everybody wants an answer to, uh, scientists included. And it's hard to really get a good answer for it when um, you don't have as much evidence as you'd like to work with. I mean, this fossil I told you about, Sahelanthropus, incredibly important fossil. But when you look at it, really, it it's basically consists of some fragments of the skull and, uh, and a few bones from the rest of the skeleton, and that's about it. Um, you know, we, we you need so much more information to really get uh, real good answers to that. But you know, you can make you can make some hypotheses, and then you can test them in the future. Um, so you know, there used to be this thought that well, you know, since we're humans and we're so wonderful and so special and so unique, that there must have been some incredibly profound reason that we diverged from other apes, which were must be of course be very stupid and inferior. Um, so uh, people would look for, for reasons that would be sort of sufficient. Um, so, for example, there was an idea that um, the, the jungles began to dry up in East Africa, and then you had the savanna, and so that our ancestors sort of strode out into the savanna, um, became bipedal, could walk on two legs, and therefore became totally different from other chimpanzees, uh, other apes, I should say. Um, the problem is that uh, the earliest hominids didn't live in savannas, that they lived in woodlands, uh, either uh, dense woodlands or light woodlands, but in any case, not these savannas. So that whole kind of theory falls apart. Um, you know, the, the, there may have been uh, other reasons that we began to diverge. Um, you know, we didn't live in dense jungles anymore, so you know, maybe we uh, needed to sort of walk from tree to tree and pull down fruits that were hanging uh, from those trees, or maybe just to stand up in a tree to pick fruit. Uh, it's not a very heroic kind of scenario, but, you know, huge changes in evolution are often based on these tiny little shifts in diet or other ways of getting a living. Okay, so now we begin to walk on two feet for whatever reason. And that, of course, freed up our hand. So tell us a little bit about our hand and our thumb. Why do we have thumbs anyway? And what are thumbs good for? Well, um, you know, obviously uh, other apes have thumbs, and, uh, but they, they look a lot different than ours. I mean, we can, you know, you can touch, touch your fingertips with your thumbs, which uh, gives you a huge amount of dexterity. You can do all sorts of things with your, with your hands thanks to the way that your thumbs are arranged. There, there must be some connection between the changes that happened in the human hand and um, things that you would use that kind of a hand for, most importantly, making tools. Uh, so the question then becomes, well, um, what is the history of tools? And that's a, another pretty murky question. The oldest evidence of uh, hominid tools is 2.6 million years old. Uh, these are stone tools. When I say tools, I don't mean a power saw or something. I just mean basically a chipped stone that you could use to like break open a bone and get the marrow out or butcher a carcass to get some meat off that you couldn't get with your with your fingers or your mouth now before that there could have been other tools that just weren't preserved in the fossil record uh, and an important thing that scientists now recognize is that chimpanzees and other apes are not dumb and and this extends to using tools so, for example, chimpanzees can make all sorts of tools. They can make sandals out of leaves. They can make little hats. They can fish 
termites out of nests. They can they can do all sorts of things. They can even use um, stone tools, although they can't use them. They can't manufacture them the way we can. So there might have been a long sort of prehistory of tool making that we only start to see about 2.6 million years ago. And now let's, of course, talk about the brain. Uh, it used to be thought that uh, because we're smart, then we use tools. But if the human brain developed relatively late on this scale, then perhaps it was the other way around. Uh, perhaps tools helped to make us in the sense that uh, those chimpanzees or ape-like uh, animals that could use tools had a, had a better survival uh, advantage over those cousins that did not have the ability to use tools. So tell us now a little bit about when did the brain start to get larger? And the big question is, what are your thoughts about why? Well, um, talking about the brain, people often think that all that happened in human evolution is that it got big, like there, you know, you stuck an air pump in the skull and just pumped it up, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, certainly, the human brain is enormous. Um, you know, mammals generally kind of follow a general pattern of, of the relationship of their brain size to their body size. Uh, we humans don't fit into that pattern. Um, our brains are about seven times too big for our body size if we were a normal mammal. So clearly we have big brains, but we also have brains that are different in other ways. I mean, they're, they have a different kind of organization. So some regions of the brain in humans are bigger than in chimpanzees. Some are smaller. There's a different kind of wiring that goes on. Uh, we're only just starting to figure out what those differences are. So a big important question is, well, um, was there uh, some sort of reorganization going on in a small hominid brain before it started becoming big? Because the brains only start to become big in the fossil record around two million years ago. So this is uh, well over half a million years after we start seeing the first stone tools. So, you know, what was going on before then, it's hard to say. Now, there are um, a lot of different theories uh, that you know, some of your uh, listeners may remember from your previous shows um, that people have put forward about why brains got big. One is sort of the peacock theory, that it's a kind of way of, of attracting mates in the same way that a peacock uses its tail to attract female uh, peacocks. Uh, there's another idea that um, that uh, sort of it's called Machiavellian intelligence, named after Machiavelli, in the sense that uh, our ancestors were just trying to figure out what everybody else was thinking and trying to manipulate them for their own ends. Uh, there are other ideas about, for example, parasites. Uh, lots of different uh, theories. Um, I think that one of the most interesting ways of thinking about it is to think about think about kind of the home life of a hominid two million years ago. Um, you know, the, they, by then, you're, you're starting to get much more towards the sort of savanna uh, kind of existence. And uh, you've got these bands of hominids moving around together. And now they've got, they've got tools, and they can get different kinds of things with their tools. They can, get, they can dig up roots, for example, which have uh, tubers that have lots of, of energy in them. They can get at lots of food stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you need to be an adult to get that stuff. Uh, and what you can do then do is bring it home and feed your kids. So now your kids aren't having to go scrounge for food themselves. They can get this wonderful amount of food from, uh, from their parents. This provides an opportunity 
for the evolution of bigger brains because the more energy can be sort of dedicated to growing these big brains uh, than to just kind of you know getting getting out of, getting out of, out of uh, the, the family and looking for food yourself. So I'm I I I kind of like to look at the kind of the kitchen side of the equation. Okay, well let's let uh, let's talk about some more theories. Uh, there are a whole bunch of theories about why we became intelligent. Uh, when we look at cheetahs and antelopes, uh, we find that they are delicately crafted to to excel at high accelerations uh, very quickly. And uh, so why is it that the cheetah and uh, certain antelopes are such finely crafted, uh, aerodynamically stable uh, animals? And, well, we realize there's an arms race, an arms race going on between predators and prey. So perhaps there was an arms race uh, among humans. But, of course, humans aren't competing against anyone. Uh, there are no more Neanderthals out there. So who are we competing against? Uh, perhaps we're competing against ourselves, other tribes, uh, other groups of humans, and uh, therefore there was a selection pressure because we competed against other humans. Uh, what are your thoughts? This is a really interesting area of research that's going on right now, and it's fascinating to watch it develop. Um, it, it, it pulls in a lot of elements from psychology, uh, even from economics. Uh, there, there are all sorts of ways of understanding uh, this process. And a lot of people think this may be really a key to understanding this, this transition in human evolution in the sense that um, you do have these different groups. You have bands that were roaming around, maybe 100, 150 strong, uh, that um, would be competing uh, for resources with other bands. <clears throat> you see this going on with chimp chimpanzees today. Well, they, they will uh, wage little battles with each other. Um, for, you know, the, the good fruit trees, for example. So uh, the question then becomes, well, um, <clears throat> how, what, what makes for a good group? Um, what, what makes for a group that's going to be able to uh, hold together, that's going to be able to um, uh, compete against these other groups? And so, you know, uh, what that may involve may be a sort of... A, really good social intelligence. In other words, being able to work cooperatively, being able to, to uh, understand what other people are thinking in order to work together to hunt, for example, or to fight off an intruder, for example. So uh, you could be getting this kind of group selection, as it's called, where, where certain groups are favored over other kinds of groups. And that, in turn, would influence... Uh, who gets to reproduce and who doesn't. And that would actually influence the shape of our brain. And, you know, built into this is something else really interesting. It's morality. Um, you know, if you look at apes, um, they do have sort of basic moral systems. They have a sense of fairness, and they, they, uh, they punish each other for breaking certain social rules. Um, it could be that our much more elaborate sense of morality emerged as these groups were competing with each other. So morality would keep, a uh, moral system would keep a group cohesive, even as people are kind of competing with each other for mates and so on. It would keep, keep these groups from falling apart. Okay, and yet there's another theory, sort of a spin-off of the peacock theory. If you take a look at humans, we are much more intelligent than necessary. We don't have to understand calculus, and we don't understand how to, we don't have to go to the moon. All we have to do is survive in the forest. 
And if you take a look at peacocks, of course, uh, peacocks feathers are totally unnecessary. So it is the female, uh, the female that chooses uh, males who are extra healthy, who can afford to have these feathers. And so this other theory says that it is the woman, the female, who decides that she wants to have a smart man. Now, if you take a look at dating habits, uh, most women say that, yeah, they want a man who is, who's smart, who wants to date a man who's not so smart, they could be taken advantage of. And if you take a look at high school, uh, a lot of the women there seem to prefer the quarterback over the halfback. So it's not necessarily the muscles, it's the, the smarts, uh, the social smarts um, that are important uh, in that game. Well, that's a theory. What are your thoughts? Um, it, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting theory because sexual selection <clears throat> is very important in the animal world. I mean, that's, that's what does give us the peacock tail. It's what gives us the, the rooster's comb. It gives us all these sorts of extravagant displays. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a little skeptical uh, about the theory just because um, there's, there's not, there haven't been that many sort of uh, rigorous tests of it. I mean, and you can, and you can think of some some uh, counterexamples that would have to be addressed. I mean, it's true that um, it's tr- true that some girls might like to take the quarterback as opposed to the rest of the football team. But the fo- rest of the football team probably does pretty well in terms of getting dates. And you know, if it's intelligence that we're talking about, then you know, why is it that the uh, that guy in the computer lab isn't getting any dates at all? Um, you know, it's it's. It's an interesting idea, but I'm waiting to see sort of how it emerges. Okay. Now, when I was watching the movie uh, The X-Men the other day, uh, it was mentioned that uh, Homo sapiens coexisted with the Neanderthals and that recent DNA evidence showed that we actually inter... Uh, we, we mated with the Neanderthals. However, I think that the DNA evidence seems to indicate the opposite. So tell us a little bit about the Neanderthals and the fact that we coexisted with them and that DNA, in fact, has been extracted from the Neanderthals. Um, Neanderthals, as far as uh, paleontologists can uh, determine, uh, probably descend from a common species uh, that... Uh, they, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Uh, Neanderthals, as far as we can tell, descend from a common ancestor that lived um, somewhere between half a million and a million years ago. Um, Now, our ancestors remained in Africa. Uh, The Neanderthals uh, and their ancestors moved out of Africa and into the Near East and into Europe. And they um, survived there for what looks to be several hundred thousand years. Uh, they had brains as big as ours or bigger. They were incredibly strong and rugged. They were master hunters. Uh, they don't seem to have displayed the kind of creativity that uh, our ancestors did. Um, they seem to be pretty much set in their ways in terms of how they made tools and um, how they hunted and so on. But that worked pretty well. I mean, they survived ice ages that would have killed most of us. But... Um, the question then is, well, what happened to Neanderthals? It used to be thought that Neanderthals just became modern Europeans, that it was just a process of evolution uh, that steadily uh, uh, led from Neanderthals to Europeans. That's not looking to be the case now. Now it looks like that Neanderthals went, became extinct, uh, that um, Africans came out of, of Africa maybe, say, um, 50,000 years ago, 50 to 70,000 years ago, and started replacing 
<coughs> the species that they encountered, like Neanderthal. Uh, now, there's been a lot of uh, talk about, well, maybe Neanderthals were able to interbreed with, uh, with our ancestors, with what are called modern humans. And, you know, this pops up in things like uh, X-Men, for example. Well, you can actually look at Neanderthal DNA uh, if you find a particularly well-preserved uh, skull or other fossil of Neanderthals. And scientists have actually found four different samples of Neanderthal DNA, and they've been able to compare the genes there with the genes of modern humans. And it turns out, if you look at the sort of family tree you can draw with that information, the Neanderthals are all going off on their own branch. They're not more closely related to Europeans uh, than they are to Asians, for example. So it really does look like they're off on their own. Now, if you look at the bones, of Neanderthals and the bones of some of the earliest Europeans, <coughs> excuse me, you do see some uh, evidence that maybe there was some some interbreeding. Um, sometimes you see a uh, modern human that has a really kind of rugged-looking jaw. Uh, there was one that was just recently reported that's 37,000 years ago, uh, 37,000 years old uh, in Romania, and it has a kind of a Neanderthal look to it, even though it's clearly a modern human. So maybe there was a little interbreeding going on. But if there was, uh, that didn't uh, mean that, uh, that there was that much going on, as the gene suggests. And that completes our interview with Carl Zimmer. He's a science writer, writes for Discover Magazine. He's the author of the book Evolution, and we have been talking about the human brain and the origins of human evolution. In light of some rather remarkable fossil discoveries and also DNA work, which helps to pin down the origins of the human race. And so once again, the author was Carl Zimmer, author of the book Evolution. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our first special guest was Dr. Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis. He's an astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution in Washington, D.C. And the second special guest was Carl Zimmer, author of the book Evolution, talking about how evolution affects all life on Earth, including human beings. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics for Exploration. Good day. <laughs>